we are in marriage, divorce, and remarriage throughout church history. This is a series, I believe this is part five now. Originally, all I wanted to do, oh, I didn't even bring the book I wanted to eventually get to. What I, all I wanted to do originally with this series was read some love letters between believers, kind of encourage us about the, um, the, the friendship that there is in marriage, something we don't hear about that often. But I wanted to give us some context, of course, that got me really into the minutia of church history. But I've really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot from it. I've kind of something I didn't know I would learn, but I didn't really doubt at the time, was you hear some modern arguments, especially with you know, people trying to make homosexuality legit in the church and you know, gay Christians, things like that. One thing they'll argue is, well, you know, marriage stuff was always debated throughout church history. So this is just another kind of evolution of that or another step in that debate. And throughout church history, even though, yeah, there's some disagreements on the terms of divorce, but there's never any question marriage was between one man, one woman, and was meant to be permanent. Of course, you know, exceptions would come up with divorce, things like that. But by and large, that was always believed throughout church history. Um, Although we do run into some interesting times with Jerome where he's kind of disregards marriage. you know, right? It's like, it's a little better than dung, but it's not that great. But still, he would say it's only between a man and a woman. So, but anyways, with that, here we are through church history. Listen to this really wonderful 18th century London Baptist pastor, uh, you know, forefather of our tradition. He's also a hymn writer. He has some really great hymns as I was researching him. Um, again, a future series I kind of want to do is just, you know, great hymn writers or even unknown hymn writers because they have some amazing stories and where a lot of those hymns come from, come from some hard stories that God has taken these people through or sometimes some great triumphs. Anyways, when he's teaching about Genesis 2.18 where God declared that he would make a helpmeet suitable for Adam after Adam saw the animals and saw there wasn't one fit for him, um, he said that it was as if God had said, quote, It is fit that man whom I have made for society should have one for his companion, with whom he may intimately converse, and who may assist him in the duties and be a sharer with him in the joys of life. Nothing, therefore, can be clearer than that the woman was created and given to man in marriage, not merely for the purpose of propagating the species, that's kind of all we heard throughout church history so far, uh, by and large, but for that of promoting his and her own Felicity, that is their blessedness, their happiness, you know, like a true joy. We may be sure a passion thus kindled in his breast will not languish and die away. It will rise into a steady, unstinguishable flame, a flame which the enduring intercourse of virtuous friendship will daily fan. And the most tempestuous storms of worldly ad- adversity will not be able to put out. This is really a for better or for worse in marriage that the friendship that there is in marriage will keep that love burning. It's an inextinguishable flame if, if done rightly. And this is what he, he starts talking about in this book, Discourses of Domestic Duties. Really, the first duty is to love, which seems obvious, but he goes into some, a lot of really deep examples, and this is kind of his conclusion on this. He says, Let every one of you so love his wife, even as himself. And again, men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. The relation is very intimate. A man is to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain are to be one flesh. It is not, therefore, 
general goodwill or friendly respect only, which this, the most enduring of all connections, demands. No. Consider her as part of himself, as one with himself, his heart, his soul. His affections ought to be indissolubly knit to her. So and so only will the salutary ends which divine benevolence has proposed be the marriage institution. He happily and effectually answered. And when I was reading this old school Reformed Baptist guy on marriage, I was like, wow, this is so different than what we were kind of getting from Jerome and the way he was talking about marriage and even Augustine. And we were like, yeah, it's good. And here's some good things about it. But I mean, now we're kind of at the pinnacle. Like we have gone through the Reformation and these guys are explaining marriage, you know, the way we would, we would hear about it today. And I think we're kind of spoiled how much good teaching we get, biblical teaching we get on marriage. Hopefully you're getting good in biblical teaching on marriage. I know what everything you're listening to. Um, but by and large, the Christian church has a good, healthy view on marriage, or at least we should be with forebearers like this. But as we've gone throughout church history, we've seen that that ideal, you know, someone teaching about marriage like that has definitely not been... Um, precisely what has been taught. Again, by and large, what they believed about marriage was, was true, you know, even if it was just some basic understandings of it. Um, but by the time we get to the Reformation, there's going to be kind of a, a big paradigm shift there, and that's where I want to take us today. When we looked at the early church, just really brief review, we saw that, again, they had a generally good understanding of marriage. They almost always went back to Genesis 2. They saw marriage was rooted in creation, one man, one woman, meant to be permanent. Again, they're under a time of persecution, so they can't really, really wax eloquence about these things. They're trying to stay alive at this point. When we got to the late antiquity period, the period where uh, in the middle there you see Constantine, the one who legalizes Christianity under the Roman Empire, uh, no longer are there, are there martyrs, or at least red martyrs, they'll call them. So Christianity kind of develops a, a kind of white martyr. Like, well, how can we show that kind of devotion that those martyrs who gave their lives, who didn't say Caesar was Lord, they proclaimed Jesus as Lord to their death, um, that, that is a high calling, and, and you know, we saw lots of converts come because of that. Um, how can we still keep up this kind of martyrdom when Christianity is legalized and they're not killing Christians? One way they did that was by beginning monasteries, um, encouraging celibacy, even in marriage, and things like that. And that's what became known as white martyrs. And it really, I think, messed up a lot of views of marriage. Really, the first person to kind of stand up against this was Jovinian. If you remember, we went through the Jovinian controversy. He basically said, whether you're married or whether you're unmarried, we're all in Christ. We all have the same standing. Ultimately, he was declared by the Pope as the author of a new heresy and blasphemy, uh, beaten, left on an island, exiled, and whatnot. But his views were becoming more and more popular because the people said, Okay, they're only able to argue against marriage by saying marriage is bad, but it's pretty clear from the Bible that marriage, that the Bible says marriage is good, so how can they say we shouldn't be married or that it's a bad thing or something like that? And that's where they got, let's get one of our best theologians at the time, Jerome. And Jerome really, I think, fumbled the ball. He didn't make the argument. Of course, I disagree with him, so he was wrong. He wasn't going to, he could still make a good argument and be wrong, but he didn't even make good arguments, I would say. So Jerome's uh, work becomes popular, even though at the time some of his, some of his own people on his side were, were against him and thought he went too far. Still, his book kind of got published the most 
the most widespread. And for the next thousand years, it's kind of one of the main texts we have on marriage. We spent a lot of time in that and in that controversy. Um, but again, if you remember when we were going through Jovinian, I was like, this guy seems like a proto-Luther to me because he is standing up against, again, this is the fourth century. It's kind of the first century where Christianity is legalized. The Roman Catholic Church is kind of becoming official and instituted. They're starting to declare, okay, clerics, priests, clergy cannot be married because because there's a higher life and celibacy, so forth and so on. Um, but he, you know, one man stood against that. He had other people with him, uh, Vigilantius, uh, Ariasis, um, some, some names we might, might review later. But again, Jerome's kind of the main one for the next thousand years. His book gains popularity, even though the, it seemed like a lot of the people were really with Jovinian. Because Jerome had gone too far, about 20 years after that, remember we spent one whole Sunday just dealing with Augustine and his views, because he was really not with Jerome. He kind of argued against Jerome, but he also argued against Jovinian. He sought to kind of find a balance between the two. And his teaching, we still hear his teaching on marriage today, kind of the way he categorized it. He says marriage has these three goods. First, these three things, namely offspring, that is procreation, that is a good thing of marriage. Fidelity, that is, you know, faithfulness to your spouse, keeping yourself pure. And the sacraments. And when he said sacrament, he meant that it was a sign pointing to Christ and his church. Therefore, it was to be permanent. It was supposed to be everlasting. So basically, it was like, you're not supposed to get divorced. That's what he said when he meant sacrament. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church turned that into their sacramental theology throughout um, the centuries, and that thing's kind of changed meaning from what Augustine originally meant by it. But either way, um, as you can see, this was a more balanced view. He says because all these things are good, because of them, marriage is good. So he didn't say marriage was bad like Jerome did. He says marriage is good. But of course, he did say you know, there is something better he does say, it is certainly better and holier not to set out to have children physically and so to keep oneself free from any activity of that kind and to be subject spiritually to only one man, Christ. Therefore, marriage and fornication are not two evils, that's what Jerome was arguing, one worse than the other, but marriage and abstinence are two goods, one better than the other. Again, this is the basic teaching we're going to you kind of have throughout Western church history for the next thousand years at this point. Regarding marriage, um, this book talks about these two views and, and says it like this. With slight, with slight differences of emphasis, these positions of Jerome and Augustine were largely embraced by the various Roman Catholic authors of the Middle Age. And this comes from the book by Haken. This is the, the book I really wanted to get to. I'm going to be dipping into it just a little bit today, but it's, it's just this tiny little book. It's not even 90 pages. It's like that big. It's kind of like one of those little gift books you give your wife. Um, and it's just love letters between, like it says, the sweetness and love of marriage and the letters of believers. And he gives little biographies, a little bit of church history, but it's really just, here's what they wrote. You know, he kind of, and I, I love seeing the letters that these authors write because Luther wrote tomes. You can see his volumes. If you Google any, any like Lutheran pastor, he's going to have the volumes of Martin Luther, kind of like, you know, we might have Calvin's uh, commentaries or the Institutes. You know, there's, there's so much words there. Um, it's always interesting to see really how the man acts in kind of more private conversation. And that's kind of what this gets into. And I, I really like it for that reason. And it also shows, you know, whether they really practice what they believed or what they taught. And we find out, you know, by and large, they did. So there's lots of examples we could show how this was 
the, the basic view throughout the next thousand years. Again, last time we left off with Augustine, that was the fifth century. So now we are fast forwarding to the 16th century time of the Reformation. So I'm just gonna give one example to kind of prove this point that like, yeah, Catholic scholars throughout that period, that's what they said. Uh, one of the most famous ones, Saint Bede the Venerable, uh, his Saint Day I think is, I saw that it was coming up and I kind of laughed at that. But anyways, he's commenting on 1 Peter 3, 7 and he wrote, intercourse is a barrier to prayer. This means that whenever I have intercourse, I cannot pray. But if we are supposed to pray without ceasing, as Paul also said, it is obvious that I can never have sexual intercourse because if I do, so I shall have to interrupt my prayers. This was just the basic logic of that day. We saw Jerome argue this. Um, Augustine didn't really argue this way. He didn't argue this bad, but um, again, this was just very standard Roman Catholicism throughout the medieval period. So this brings us, like I said, to 1517 and beyond, which is the time of Reformation and Counter-Reformation, because uh, you can't have one without the other, really. So again, there's a major paradigm shift here, and it starts off with just one man's story. We're all familiar with Martin Luther. He was a monk who simply couldn't find peace in his conscience. He didn't know how he could please a holy God. He didn't understand the sacrifice of Christ was for him. Again, in that Roman Catholic system, that was a part of it, but he still had to do all these other good works and who knows how much time he would have to spend in purgatory. And it was just, he, because he truly believed what he was being taught, he was tormented. Under the Roman Catholic system, there truly is no peace because your sins aren't fully forgiven. Or how do you know you're not going to commit a mortal sin at some point? And then you backtrack and the understanding of how many years you're going to spend in purgatory and how that gets paid for. Um, anyways, eventually he got to the original text working as a monk, that's when he found out it is God who justifies the ungodly, and it is by faith alone. And that completely changed him, and it made him see how there's many abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. And kind of like Jovinius, a thousand years before this, he wanted to discuss them, he wanted to debate those, um, and he wanted to really preach the truth. Ultimately, what winds up happening is, is he sees we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, it's right in Christ alone. So it's only by his birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the works of Christ. When we, say, when we talk about the life and works of Christ, that's what we're talking about, all of what Christ did. Um, it's only by that that we are saved. And that is ultimately for the glory of God alone. And this was kind of the big ethical change, you know, difference with form theology. In, in a lot of medieval Roman Catholic theology, they were, it, it was similar to you know what you might hear about the Sadducees or Pharisees. They wanted to please God. They saw the law, but they kind of made all these rules to, well, I kept this rule. You know, I tithed my, tithed my mint and cumin, but that guy's destitute on the floor, and I could care less. I'm just going to walk by. You know, it wasn't a real... They, they were so into the letter of the law, they forgot the spirit of the law. Um, but anyways... This is, was kind of the thing we most know about the Reformation. It was a gospel reformation. The true gospel had been obfuscated, just buried under theological error, under all these different traditions of men. Um, you know, some not bad, but then as they grow throughout the centuries, kind of getting worse and worse and worse. So the first thing Luther does, at least when it comes to marriage, again, he didn't just seek to... After he, after he had gone back and seen how the gospel was kind of hidden in that Roman Catholic system and he needed to be brought out and you know, all that pushed aside and the gospel just 
shining in glory and preached to all people, he saw that there were other things that that affected, one of them being marriage and family life. One of the main texts we always go to, when, uh, or at least the church fathers always go to, is 1 Corinthians 7. That's one of the main texts they use for marriage, that in Genesis 2. So, of course, he goes there, and he's actually interacting with Jerome's views because he's not convinced that Jerome was correct. And that's kind of a big deal because the reformers, especially, and I, I, it was kind of eye-opening for me the first time I read through Calvin's Institutes, how much he quotes the church fathers. And he did that for the purpose of saying, we're not a new religion. We agree, like, this is always what Christianity has taught throughout the ages since the apostles. Yes, they viewed the Bible as the sole, ultimate, final authority, but they wanted to show that we have a connected line. Yeah, sometimes we've gone off, but we've always have, have had faithful men um, since the apostles pointing back to Christ. So, um, so it's kind of a big deal when they, whenever they interact with church fathers. They don't do it lightly. Um, and, of course, Luther doesn't do anything lightly, of course. You know, he goes hard against the Pope. But when he deals with the church fathers, he's a little kinder. So kudos to him for that. I, I love Luther, so this, this should be fun. But let's look at what he says. Um, this is actually him dealing with this on, in a book called On Monastic Vows. So Luther sees his connection, his own connection with Jovinian, which is interesting. He says, Indeed, just as one disputation gives rise to another, right? There's always debates throughout church history. These ungodly people will shout that I am Jovinian, and they will bring Jerome's arguments against Jovinian, in which he defended celibacy, to bear against me. They will think that I have never read Jerome. They think that it is enough just to have read him. They never think it necessary to form some opinion about what they have read. And I, I love how he says that, because it's, it's true. Sometimes you can kind of just... Well, I agree with the church fathers, and yeah, I, I read him, but you don't, you don't think for yourself. You've got to remember, we need to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. These are, these are fallible men. You know, obviously, it's different when we come to the word. All of the word is true, and oftentimes we find that it butts up against us, and sometimes it's, some stuff is hard for us to chew on. Um, but when it comes throughout any scholar, pastor, you know, we, we want to test all things according to the word, just like the Bereans would, right? And so that's what he's saying. He's like, yes, I have read Jerome. They said they've read Jerome, but I don't know if they're actually thinking about the arguments because they're just saying, well, Jerome said it, it's settled as if he's the authority. He goes on, or, or rather, when the Counter-Reformation comes up, R Roman Catholic Church holds on to this position that they've held on to millennia, kind of double downing on it. They say, if anyone says that the married state excels the state of virginity or celibacy, and that it is better and happier to be united in matrimony than to remain in virginity or celibacy, let him be anathema. Under these same councils, this is also where they say, those who say you are justified by faith alone, anathema, things like that. So they're, again, this is why they're, you know, Luther didn't set out to split the church or things like that, but when people are anathematizing to you in the church you're trying to reform, kind of don't have a choice. So, but despite Luther's association with Jovinian, Luther says he has to stand on his own, right? He is his own man. He says, I myself do not know what Jovinian really meant. If you remember, the only words we really have of Jovinian were what his opponents wrote against him. So we're not really sure if they even quoted him accurately. So I think that's pretty wise of Luther to say that. He says, perhaps he did not handle the argument properly. What I do know, however, is that Jerome has not handled it properly. And that's when he interacts with him and gives us a more positive teaching about what marriage is, shows us where Jerome went wrong. So I thought that was very wise of, of Luther himself. I'm not going to go into that in, in detail because I kind of I want to get to the letters with, with him and his wife. Um, 
one historian, Michael Rand, says of this, Jovinian was a man who stood against the consensus of his generation on celibacy and the hierarchy of merit and who paid the price for it. That mantle was picked up again during the Reformation. So again, Jovinian's really a proto-Luther, very, very fascinating figure throughout church history. And it's not just, you know, this is a Southern Baptist guy. It's not just Southern Baptist Protestants who believe that, who kind of say, like, there's always kind of been this, this strand of Protestantism throughout church history. Those who stood on God's word, even when, you know, the mother church of the time was kind of going against it. A Roman Catholic, you know, a very famous historian, John Henry Newman, wrote this about, about Jovinian and his friends. He says, where then is primitive Protestantism to be found? In the history of Arius, Jovinian, and Vigilantius, men who may be called, by some sort of analogy, the Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli of the fourth century. And they have been so considered both by Protestants and their opponents. So he says, you know, just in fairness, yeah, these guys do seem to have a, an early strand of Protestantism where they saw the, the word alone was the, or the word was the final authority in matters of faith and life. So getting back to Luther's work on monastic vows, this was written in 1521. So Reformation happens in 1517. This is a couple years after that. Word's getting out. Lots of works are getting published by him. Some of his most famous works have already been published by this point. I think it was 1520 when like, his three biggest works were written. The first one was his call for the German nobility to rise against the Roman Catholic Church who he called the Whore of Babylon um, by creating an independent national church. His other arguments against the sacramental system and how the Pope, or as he would call him, the Antichrist, um, and his clergy were using the sacramental system to enslave Christians. And his third and final kind of seminal work was his work on the bondage of the will, in which he argued that because we are fallen because of the effects of original sin, we need divine grace to change our hearts. Otherwise, we, we are only free to do evil, rather. So... But his work on monastic vows was also a pretty big work that came out a year later. The reason being is because it led many monks and nuns to leave their monasteries, which had a big effect on society because there was that was another mouth to feed if they went back to their family. Um, some of them didn't have skills that would work outside of a convent or a monastery. So um, it brought up some interesting, some interesting issues. But this is Luther has two basic arguments for why he was against monastic vows and whatnot. He argues, one, it's contrary to the word of God. That is, they did not have the authority of scripture. The Bible doesn't tell us anywhere to do that, basically. Also, the gospel is not common to all. It is divided into counsels and precepts. And what Luther means by that is this was a category in the Roman Catholic Church where they said the commands of councils were only for those who sought to live that perfect life, right? The nuns, the, the monks, those who sought to live that higher life, those who had taken vows of poverty, chastity, so forth and so on. And the precepts were commands God had given that were for all. So they might say, okay, the Sermon on the Mount are, are councils. Those are only for those really, really holy, you know, they're kind of categorizing these two different groups of Christians. Just like Jovinian, Luther was against this. He's like, we're all one in Christ. The whole Bible is for the whole man. This does not need to be split up. This is, this is not quite right. Now, he, he did kind of balance it out saying, throughout church history, I'd seen men who, of their own volition, you know, decided to take these vows for their own spiritual life. They didn't try to put it on anyone else. They didn't rely on their works. If they relied on Christ, 
then that's fine. They have that Christian liberty to do that. But as far as this whole monk nun system, uh, he was against it. Second reason he was against it was it contradicted Christian faith. Monastic vows made and kept apart from faith are sin. Here he goes on to explain, kind of towards the end of Romans, whatever is not of faith is sin. He was worried, and this was some of the same arguments that we saw Jovinian make. Um, oh, who's the other guy? Uh, Christostom made this argument too. He was a former monk, and he said, so many of them become really prideful because they start relying on their own works. They're not trusting in Christ anymore. And again, one reason Luther even says a Christian faith is there's, the Roman system had created so many different categories general faith, special faith, acquired faith, infused faith, just to name a few. Um, and he says, basically, if, if they are not trusting in Christ alone to do good in them, if they're relying on themselves, I am opposed to this. No matter what you call it, no matter how long the tradition has been around, it's simply not biblical. So, Luther was a man of his word, so when nuns would write him, you know, he encouraged people to get out, get out of these convents, get out of these monasteries, you know, what would Luther do when people would write him? One, we, we have some of the letters. This letter is just called to three nuns. It's just three different nuns that asked him for his opinion. Their, their main question was, okay, but we've made a vow. Like, shouldn't we keep our vow? Shouldn't we be true to our word? And Luther responds, have you thoroughly understood that there are two grounds for abandoning convent life and monastic vows? The first exists when human laws and monastic works are imposed by force are not assumed voluntarily and become burdensome to the conscience. It wasn't uncommon back then for families to, maybe they had a farm that could easily provide for four, five people, but now they have a six kid. Well, we could send one off to the nunnery or the monastery and that kind of takes care of that. We can now provide for this new child. And society looks at that as a holy thing anyways. You can kind of you know, score some points with your neighbors. Um, and then you don't have to worry about not producing enough food for your family. So it really wasn't uncommon that people were given to, you know, become nuns and monks by force, by their parents, really. He, of course, says that's not how vows should be made. <laughs> so that's uh, not biblical. He says, if your relatives or parents are unwilling, let some other good people help you to depart. No matter whether this causes your parents to be angry, die, or rejoice. Of course, this is Luther, so he's so extreme. I love him. Uh, For God's will and the soul salvation should come first. Since, Christ says, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Again, this this is a real situation. Your daughter coming back from being a nun or your son coming back from being a monk well, do you have work for him? Do you have enough food for him? How are you going to provide for him? And so this was a, a real kind of dilemma that some people would, would have. Luther says, well, find someone to help. You know, there's people out there, there's good Christian people, they'll help because they don't want you to do things that are against your conscience. Especially if, he even brings up later, if they're keeping you from reading the word of God for yourself, if they're, you know, chaining it to the podium and only one guy once every, every now and then will say it in Latin or whatever. He says, but if your sisters grant you liberty in the convent and at least allow you to read or hear the word of God, you may remain with them and perform and observe such convent duties as spinning, cooking, and the like, so long as you do not put your trust in these works. And it always comes down to motive. And this is just something we can think about in our own lives. Whatever we're doing, you know, what is our motive? What are we ultimately doing it for? Are we trying to impress others? Are we trying to justify ourselves before God? You know, we, I can kind of say that jokingly, but sometimes when we 
are. We do actions. That can, that can creep up on us. It's, it's very natural for the natural man to want to work his way to salvation. But again, we always need to remind ourselves it's by Christ alone. The second ground, he says, is the flesh. Although women are ashamed to acknowledge this, scriptures and experience teach us that there is only one in several thousands to whom God gives the gift to live chastely in a state of virginity. A woman does not have complete mastery over herself. The words of Genesis chapter 1 clearly state this, and the members of her body sufficiently show that God himself forms her for this purpose. Just as eating, drinking, waking, and sleeping are appointed by God to be natural, so God also wills that it be natural for a man and a woman to live together in matrimony. This is enough, therefore, and no woman need to be ashamed of that for which God has created and fashioned her. And if she feels that she does not possess that high and rare gift, that gift of celibacy, she may leave the convent and do that for which she is adapted by nature. And from there, he goes on to give recommendations of fuller works he wrote and to substantiate his points from scripture, all these kind of points he makes. Um, he mentioned several of the books um, that we won't look at, but because I think we, we understand this stuff and, and would agree with it. So, um, But since writing this people would then begin to ask him for help. And so Martin Luther, the great monk who opposed the Pope, and um, he had at one point to become a matchmaker, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, one such case took place in the Nimschen convent. Now, I don't know German very well, so apologies if I pronounce. I'll probably just, let me just say, I'm going to mispronounce every one of these German words. So this is the ruins of the convent. Um, here, several nuns had heard of the radical Martin Luther. They were shocked at how he opposed indulgences for forgiveness of sins, and they were interested. And again, Luther's works are, are um, becoming widespread throughout Germany and influencing the population. I mean, nuns were getting his works as, as well and reading them, and they're apparently whispering to each other about his teachings and saying, like, do you believe this? Can you believe this? Um, but then checking it out with the Bible and seeing... He's not wrong. Um, so Luther's writings eventually made, made way to them. Um, this particular lady, Magdalena von Spouts, Spaupitz, wrote to Luther saying, there's several of our nuns that want to leave, that we can't worship God in a good conscience, um, but we really don't have anyone. Can you help? So Luther responded that if, he could get, if they could get help from the elders of Torgau, which is about 30 miles away from them, that he would help them find homes and help them find husbands. So on Easter weekend of 1523, 12 nuns escaped the convent by using Leonard's Copé's wagon that he used to bring the convent fish on a regular basis. There's even some writings that where Luther mentioned that they were packed like herring. So it's, some people argue whether they were just in the back of the wagon. Some say, no, they were actually in the fishing barrels. Um, I do think they were probably in the fishing barrels because the um, Duke George in a province kind of close to this who, who hated Luther um, had already hung a man for trying to help nuns escape um, in a very similar type situation. So I'm, I would not be surprised if, yeah, they were actually hiding in the fishing barrels in the middle of the night to get away from them. Just to kind of give you some geography, um, there's Europe where the mouse is, there's Germany. This is an area south of Berlin, kind of zooming in a little more on it. You could see there, and I think it's all still kind of small, but it's about a 70-mile journey back and forth. 
Um, depending on the route they took, I don't know, but I was interested in the province. That's where it is. The very, very top, you could see Berlin there. So it's about 80 miles southwest of that. But anywho, over the next two years, Luther had stayed true to his word. And along with the help of others, he did get 11 of those 12 nuns married. The last one was apparently some feisty redhead named Katerina von Bora. She had entered the convent at the age of five. And by the way, the, the wording of feisty redhead is sometimes uh, the wording that the historians and Luther would even use. So Luther had a lot of, anyways, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, so she had entered the convent at the age of five. Again, this is one of those situations is she the one really making the vows at that age or is it the parents giving her up? So she probably has a good reason to break that vow, I would say. Um, anyway, she entered the convent at the age of five. While working with a wealthy family, she got engaged to a Jerome, although she was heart he was a student and when he went away, he wound up getting engaged to someone else, really left her heartbroken. Um, there was a Dr. Gatz who tried to, uh, try to be one of her suitors, but she spurned him because by this point, apparently she only had eyes for Luther. But Luther at this point was like, I'm running for my life. The Pope's trying to kill me. I can't get married. I don't even believe that clergy should get married at this point. Um, although, well, he didn't think he himself should. He was encouraging nuns and monks to get married and thought it was a good idea. He's like, well, you both are single and you both have left. So why don't you guys get married? That was a lot of his matchmaking. Um, but at some point, Luther does wind up marrying her. They got married June 13, 1525. It was a really quiet wedding, hardly any guests, wasn't publicized. As soon as Luther's friends found out, they were pretty upset at him. They thought it was, this was going to be the downfall of the Reformation. All the work he was doing, well, now he's a married man. How is he going to do all this writing? How is he going to finish this project and that project? Um, he's going to probably get burned at the stake pretty soon. Like, what was he thinking? Uh, Philip Melanchthon, who actually most of our, if you think of modern day Lutheranism, most of it actually comes from uh, Luther's friend, Philip Melanchthon, really should be probably called Melanchthonism, but that doesn't have quite the ring and a less popular figure. Um, but he, he said that it was an unlucky deed that this happened. Again, no one liked this. This was a bad idea. I think there was like a 15 or 16 year difference between their ages. Um, everyone's just like, what was Luther thinking? He didn't even want to be married. But thankfully, Luther does give us three reasons of why he wanted to marry. And of course, if you can guess Luther, with him being Luther, they're going to be strange. So Luther says the first reason was to please his father. This was probably to carry on the family line. To spite the Pope and the devil, um, the Pope's and the, his opponents were saying that he's going to, if they, if they have children, it's going to be the Antichrist that Luther has no self-control. There's no way he's going to stay married or he only got married because he doesn't have self-control. But of course, Luther wind up rejecting that line of thinking and saying like, no, it is good. Like I am made, I am made for this. I don't have the gift of celibacy. It is fine for me to be married. I would assume that's what he said. He doesn't give us too many details except this, this interesting quote. And he says to seal his witness before his martyrdom. I guess put his money where his mouth was because he, he really did believe at this time that the coming of Christ was imminent and that probably within a year he was going to be burned at the stake. So I guess he's like, well, let me get married for a year. Again, that seems really irresponsible if you actually believe that, if he actually believed that. But that's Luther. What are you going to do with him? So um, 
throughout their marriage, they would have six children. They did experience two losses with their children. Uh, one died at the age of 14, another one at eight months due to just various disease. The birth of one of his ch- children, actually it, all, all his children, he would say like, Katie and I, uh, thank God, he has given us a little heathen. He would call them all little heathens when they were born. So again, is theologically correct, I guess. Um, like maybe he hasn't baptized them yet, just kidding. Um, but he would say, he would say of, of, um, of Hans Luther, when, when he would wrap him in swaddling clothes, he, was, he would say, kick little fellow, that is what the Pope did to me, but I got loose. And so he would encourage his, you know, just like he would say, sin boldly, he would encourage his kids even to like kick out of the swaddling bands, just like I did against the Pope. Um, he was already instilling that, that spirit of Luther to his children. Um, when he was cutting his teeth, I love this quote too, uh, he, he said um, that Hans is cutting his teeth and beginning to make a joyous nuisance of himself. These are the joys of marriage, which the Pope is not worthy. Again, he's always taking pop shots at the Pope. Uh, really fun. So sorry if you're Romanist, but uh, this is Luther. Um, Katie wound up managing their proper, property and keeping Luther sane um, by keeping wine, beers, things that, that, would, that would help calm him and keep him um, in a right state of mind, he, had, he did have a lot of pressures. Luther did really love his wife so much. She gave, or, or rather, he gave the book of Galatians, which was his favorite book. That book was just so clear to Luther that we are justified by faith alone, um, in Christ alone, right? Through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, that he called the book of Galatians his Katerina von Burra. Like this was, this was his beloved. This was his rib, he would even refer to her. He'd go so far as to say, I give more credit to Katerina than to Christ, who has done so much for me. And again, only a guy like Luther could get away with that. But again, that's Luther. I'm just going to leave that be. And, um... Now, in this time, it wasn't actually uncommon that people would get divorced. Usually it would happen because of adultery. Some of the excuses for adultery was not uncommon in our day. I fell out of love. I'm no longer in love with you. Things like that. So Luther does comment on this kind of infatuation type love. He says, the first love is drunken. When the intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage love. Of course, Luther always making beer analogies. It is the highest grace of God when love continues to flourish in married life. The first love is ardent, right? It's fervent. It's passionate. It is, so, it is an intoxicated love so that we are blinded and are drawn to marriage. After we have slept off our intoxication, sincere love remains in the married life of the ungodly, but the ungodly are sorry they have ever married. Again, because that, that kind of infatuation, that kind of searching for just those ooey-gooey feelings, those butterflies in the stomachs, they don't last. And, and if you're only looking for that, and you're just like, well, let me find someone else where that does last, then, yeah, that is an ungodly thing. And he says, if you can hold out on that, and once you wake up from that drunken stupor, actually what you're going to find is a greater, a deeper love, which grows over time, like he talked about earlier, or rather, that Reformed Baptist guy talked about earlier in that earlier quote, it becomes an unextinguishable love. No tempest storm of life is going to quench it. Luther also taught, of course, that love was a mandate. He says, love indeed there is in Christian marriage, but it is only a heightening of that Christian love which is enjoyed toward all. We are told to love our neighbors. The wife is the nearest neighbor. She should be the most beloved. Uh, Let's quickly read through two of his letters to kind of get a sense, again, just the personal life of Luther. You know, he's always blaming the Pope, always dissing on him. And uh, he did have a a sense of humor, though. And 
And you see this in his letters. So Michael Haken comments on these two letters we're about to read, saying, In the two letters of Luther that follow, written in the years of his death, one sees Luther's keen sense of humor, I think you always do, but also his awareness of the responsibility of a married man or woman to pray for his or her spouse. Also evident is the responsibility to encourage one's spouse in the faith. So this is his letter to Katerina on uh, January 25th. Uh, Hallel is the location of where this took place. Hallel, yes, that's how you, I did look that one up, I think I said. Martin Luther, to my kind and dear Katie Luther, a brewer and a judge at the pig market at Wittenberg. She did make his favorite beer. He always looked forward to coming home because he said it was the best beer in Germany, and apparently Luther drank a lot of beer. Um, and the reference that her being a, a I think like the, it's literally she was a she-judge of pigs, um, was her reference was a reference to her keeping the home she really kept the income flowing she managed the home they had lots of family they even had relatives and uh, refugees and students from all over um, germany that would come and stay there and get help and um, she really made it so that luther could continue the reformation he also calls every time he'd go home it was really a hospital for him it was life-giving for him so she really kept him alive probably longer than he would have been on his own he even has one quote where he says, before marriage, I, would, I didn't realize I was rolling in sweaty sheets. I'd never washed the covers. I, just, I was just so tired. I didn't even care. It's like, that's nasty. He says, and now I wake up to clean sheets and pigtails right next to me. Uh, it's, he's a dork. Anyways, he says, grace and peace in the Lord. Dear Katie, today at eight, we drove away from Hallel, yet did not get to Eiselben, but returned to Hallel again by nine. He's trying to travel back to her. For a huge female Anabaptist met us with waves of water and great floating pieces of ice. She threatened to baptize us again and has covered the whole countryside. Now, there wasn't actually a huge Anabaptist woman. He's referring to the river uh, Salie there. Its banks overflowed after a freeze. But again, as much as he dissed the popes, he would be dissing Anabaptists. They were the ones who wanted to rebaptize. And so he says, this giant female Anabaptist tried to baptize me again. In other words, the waters were flooded. They couldn't pass. But it's Luther. But we are also unable to return because of the Molde River at Bitterfield and are forced to stay captive here at Hallel between the waters. Not that we are thirsty to drink of them. So they're kind of encased between two rivers. It's flooded. He doesn't want to drink those waters. So what's he going to do? Instead, we take good beer from Torgau. That's where she came. Or that's where they, the elders came from to help her out. And good wine from the Rhine, with which we refresh and comfort ourselves in the meantime, hoping that the rage of the Sully River may wear itself out today. For since the ferrymen and the people themselves were of little courage to try to cross, we did not want to go into the water and tempt God. For the devil is angry at us, and he lives in the water. Foresight is better than hindsight, and there is no need for us to prepare a fool's delight for the Pope and his hangers on. He's probably talking about here that if Luther died by foolishly trying to cross a river that even ferrymen who are kind of more experts at that wouldn't cross, he thought that would give the Pope a good excuse to mock him and make fun of him, and he didn't want any of that. I did not think that the Salie could create such a flood and rumble over the stones and everything in such a way. No more for now. So he now divulges and kind of gets a little more serious. You people pray for us and be good. For I am sure that if you were here, you too would have advised us to proceed in this way. So you see, at least once we are following your advice. With this, I commend you to God. Amen. Martin Luther, doctor. In his second letter, he writes, this is uh, about a month later. Or is it like a month? Yeah, yeah, it's a month later, a little less than a month. 
Martin Luther to the Holy Lady, full of worries, Miss Katerina, doctor, the Lady of Zoltdorf at Wittenberg, my gracious dear mistress of the house. Zoltdorf, they had, he had bought another property there uh, for farming purposes. Grace and peace in Christ, most holy Mrs. Doctor. I thank you very kindly for your great worry, which robs you of sleep. The context of this is she's worried about him, essentially, and uh, to the point where it's, it's robbing her of sleep. She's like, what is going on with my husband? You know, there was a lot of controversy, and his life was in danger from time to time, so you can understand why a wife would worry about that. Since the date that you started to worry about me, the fire in my quarters right outside the room tried to devour me. And yesterday, no doubt because of the strength of your worries, a stone almost fell on my head and nearly squashed me as in a mousetrap. For in our secret chamber, Mordar has been falling down for about two days. The secret chamber he's referring to here is the toilet. Uh, apparently, he had irritable bowel syndrome. And if it wasn't for that, he may have, he spent most of his time actually translating the New Testament into German while on the toilet. Apparently this was, uh, he was, he was kind of confined to a chair, so he couldn't do anything else. So God in his providence used that to get the word of God to his people. Um, when it comes to Luther, you d it's easy to say the Lord works in mysterious ways. But anyways, he's kind of mocking his wife's worry and saying, because of your worry, this happened and this happened and this happened. And he goes on, we called in some people with, who merely touched the stone with two fingers and it fell down. The stone was as big and as long as a long pillow and as wide as a large hand. It intended to repay you for your holy worries had the dear angels not protected me. Just, the sarcasm is just spewing out of Luther. Now I worry that if you do not stop worrying, the earth will finally swallow us up and all the elements will chase us. Is this the way you learn the catechism and the faith? So this is where he starts turning it to like, okay, let's get to some truth now. Pray and let God worry. You have certainly not been commanded to worry about me or yourself. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you, as is written in Psalm 55:22 and many more passages. Your holiness... Your Holiness is willing servant, Martin Luther. I, I really love how playful these two are. This is, this is writing you hear from Luther. I mean, he doesn't write this way when he's writing his doctrinal dissertations and his commentaries and, um, or even his catechisms and whatnot or his instruction to children. He's only this, I mean, he's pretty mean to the Pope, but he's not this playful as he is with his wife. And I think it shows, it shows a, a certain type of love. You know, I wouldn't joke this way, but I know people who, who do and... Again, I think it took a special woman to relate to him like that. So one question I have is like, okay, could, could, did she enjoy this kind of joking? Did, could she, you know, fight back like this, you know, playfully, lovingly as a, as a wife? Of course, like I said, Luther dealt with some pretty dark depressions and whatnot. I won't go into the whole story for, uh, I can't believe time was almost up already. Um, but he's having a lot of pressures. It's about a three-day, he's just super depressed and he's um, been muttering to himself. He's walking around the house. He's usually cheerful, playing. You'll see a lot of artwork where he's playing a little, a little lute, a little guitar-type instrument uh, with his children singing with them. But he's just three days super depressed. And so his wife comes down in, black, in a black mourning dress as if she's going to a funeral or just came from a funeral. And Luther says, who's dead? Katie says, God is dead. Luther scolds her like, what do you mean God is dead? God cannot die. Well, the way you've been acting, I was sure he had. And that alone is what it took for Luther to really 
shake out of this funk he was in. Um, you know, I don't know if any one of his friends could offer him enough advice or counsel or this or that. This is something only a, a wife who knows him that well could, <laughs> could, could feel free to spout out some heresy like that to really shake Luther out of, his, out of that, that funk. And um, in, in, in this story, Luther says that at that point, he, he scribed into his desk the Latin words vivit, which means he lives. And whenever he got discouraged, he would go back to there and remind himself, God is alive, God lives, and he is for me. Uh, what have I to fear? And that, that was a, a really huge help for him. Um, we won't go through the rest of this. He talks about some child-rearing stuff and even how the changing of diapers is a good and glorifying thing. Maybe we'll get to some of this. Um, we'll kind of continue it. But they did remain married for 20 years until the time that Martin Luther's death in 1546. And um, are there any questions at this time? So we're pretty much done. So it's already 2.50. All right, well, with that, may, um, as, as going through that, I guess the encouragement is their love, may their love remind us of the love of Christ for his bride. Now, that is what it points to. That is what it's for. Um, it is something good, as Luther says, um, and it really did change the world going forward because until this point, people were really questioning whether clergy could get married and, and you know, how good marriage really was. And they still had, I mean, because they had a thousand years of a lot of bad baggage and information on this. And, and Luther, just like he stuck his foot down and brought the gospel back out and shown forth its beauty, he did the same for marriage and for family life and for child rearing. Um, and for that, he should be commended. And God worked through him greatly, um, even in a marriage he didn't originally want to get married. Um, and and that, that strange marriage that they had. Um, but God used it. Their love grew. And um, it does remind us of you know, the Father's great love for his redeemed children, Christ's love for his church. So with that, let's pray. Well, God, we do pray that uh, by your spirit, you would cause love to grow more and more in our hearts. We know um, if we love, it is only because of your goodness, God. So I do pray that you would, if you would help us to grow more in love and to seek to love our neighbor as ourselves, seek to love you um, as you rightfully deserve, God. Please sanctify us today. Please bless our church service. And please um, be glorified in our lives in all that we do, whether we eat, whether we sleep, or as Luther was saying, whether we're changing diapers or fighting against the Pope, may we do it all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray.